Matthew 25. I'm going to read verses 31 through 46. And then pray for our time in God's Word this day. This is what our Christ says. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray for our time in God's Word this Lord's Day. Father, we pray that You would give us eyes to see, minds to comprehend, and hearts to believe this Lord's Day. We pray, Lord, as we look towards the final judgment, Lord, that each of us here would be ready. And Lord, for any who is not ready, we pray that this would be the day of their salvation, the day of their repentance, the day where they place their faith in Christ, who is our King, and in whose name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a television show that started, and it was quite different than any TV show before it. The year was 1980, and what made this show so different was that it looked at the real lives of real people. Up until that point, most TV shows were not about real people, they were fictitious, there were characters played, and this was the first attempt at what we call today a reality TV. It was really the first reality TV show, and yet it didn't take place on an island, it didn't take place in some Hollywood mansion, no one was voted off, no one was given a rose, no one danced, no one sang. No, the show was called The People's Court, and for those of you who remember The People's Court, you remember Judge Wapner sitting on his stand exercising judgment while he had his handy bailiff Rusty there with him. And you remember that show. It basically was an arbitration for small claims between two individuals. And he would hear their claims and then he would present to them a a judgment and then the court reporter would interview him afterwards and he would talk about don't take the law in your own hand, uh, just come to the people's court. Uh, The show actually uh, was turned down by many before it was finally broadcast and now at last, even now today, in a different versions. 
Many people watched it. Uh, They were drawn to it. The question is why? The question is, when we look at our culture today and we see courtroom drama or judicial cases being settled, it seems that we're drawn into these things. We want to watch these things. In fact, it seems in our nation that at least every year or so, there's some case that grabs national attention and and we watch as the arguments are presented, as judgment is exercised, but we know in our system that even after a decision is made, there may be an appeal or or years of appeals. We're, We're drawn to watch these things and within us, we want to see justice. Uh, we want to see right prevail. We, we get upset when it doesn't. We get upset when it's clear that a person is guilty and yet they are declared innocent because of some minor flaw or issue. When we look to the Scripture today, we see a judgment taking place and yet it is very different than the judgments in our courts today. Uh, There is no process of appeal. Uh, There is no case that drags on and on and on. There are no tricks at the end to twist the decision. No, this is a judgment exercised by our King Christ. It is final, it is authoritative, and it is absolute. And Jesus said it is indeed coming. And as we've looked at in previous weeks today, we ask the same question. Are you, am I, are we ready for this judgment? We're going to look today through this passage and and look a little bit more about what this judgment entails. The, The first thing we're going to look at is this, that when Jesus returns, He will judge all the nations. When Jesus returns, He will judge all the nations. Notice there in verse 31 that the description we're giving. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne what a a picture of perfection what a picture of the righteousness of God do you remember as we've gone through Matthew one of the things that enraged the people of Jesus's day was this this claim of his that that he was indeed God that he was God in flesh this would enrage them because throughout the Old Testament the teaching was there is only one judge and and that judge is the Lord God Uh, He is the only one who's absolute. He's the only one who's perfect. He's the only one who is just. There is no corruption with our God. And here we see, it it is not God the Father sitting in judgment. It is Christ, His Son, our King, our Lord, the Messiah, who exercises judgment. And it is a perfect judgment. Unlike our day and our court system where it seems things are arbitrated and appealed, And they go on and on and on. I was talking to a friend just recently about a case that they are uh, involved in, a family member is involved in, and it it took place. It's an issue that took place years ago. It's been years, and they're still trying to settle it. And I was talking to him about, well, won't you be glad when it's settled? And he said, well, it won't be settled. Because even when it's settled, there'll be appeal after appeal after appeal. It seems that there are ways just to drag things on and on, and yet that's not what we see here. That there's no appealing this judgment. It is final. It is absolute. And Christ says it is indeed coming. And notice who it is for. Verse 32. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. Think about what you and I have witnessed in recent weeks as you've watched the Olympics. That that parade of the nations. 204 nations represented in these games in London. And yet, it is but a mere representation of of the population of our world today. 
while there are about 200 nations, we know that there are some 16,000 people groups in those nations. We know that there are about 7 billion people on our planet today. You take that number into account and you realize added with it the, the billions of people who have already lived, however many will come between this day and the day of Christ's return and His judgment. And Jesus says they're all going to be there. All the nations will be there at judgment. Now this may cause concern. There are some who hear this teaching and they say, well, that, that doesn't seem very fair of God. I mean, after all, there, there are billions of people in the world today who have yet to hear the Gospel. How, how is it fair of God that they are going to be judged on something that they never heard? This was a question that came up a number of years ago. I was teaching a Sunday school class. I was substituting in that class for one of our teachers at the church I used to serve at. And one of the members of that class a member who'd been on many mission trips, a member who held many positions of leadership in the church. So we started talking this through. He raised his hand. He said, well, I just want to say this. He said, the God that I worship is a fair God. And the God that I worship, He's going to make a way for those people who've never heard the Gospel. I think when faced with questions, with issues like that, moments that are tense, the only place we can go is not to our heart and our emotions, it's to God's Word. And, and what does God's Word teach us? I think, first of all, God's Word teaches us that there certainly is a way for every person on the planet today to be exposed to the Gospel. It's us. We are called by God to go to the nations with the Gospel. That is the way. Well, the question still remains. What about those we haven't reached yet? What about those who haven't heard? And as he protested in this class, he said, it's just not fair. And so I said, well, explain to me how you think this works out. And he says, well, it's simple. Those who've never heard the Gospel, he said, they're not going to be accountable to it. God's going to make a way for them. And so I challenge that. If that's where you're at, I would challenge you with what I've been challenged with, and it's this. Let's, let's say that Somehow there is some exempt clause out there. The Scripture doesn't teach it, but let's just say it exists. That people in far off lands who've never heard the Gospel, somehow they're safe because they've never had a chance to deny it. What's the worst thing we could do for them? Take them the Gospel. I mean, if they're safe over here in this nation, they're, they're clouded somehow from God's judgment. They've never heard the Gospel. They've never rejected it, so somehow they're safe. Well, what's the absolute worst thing we can do? Show up on their nation's uh, ground and start sharing the Gospel with them and then they reject it. Logically, it just doesn't make any sense. And scripturally, it is unbiblical. Christ in this picture doesn't say that when the Son of Man comes in His glory, He's going to gather together everybody who'd had an opportunity to reject the Gospel. He's going to say He's going to gather the nations. And friends, that's why we need to go to the nations. That's why we need to go fervently and give and pray and resource and send people, not just to Poland and Malaysia, but to every continent on the planet. Because one day, we and they will all stand accountable before a holy God. Scripture tells us that on that day when that happens, that there's going to be a judgment. It says that Jesus, like a shepherd, is going to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, this is an illustration that makes a lot more sense in, in Jesus' day. I don't 
think a lot of you are sheep and goat herders, perhaps some, but, but, but in Jesus' day, those who kept uh, livestock often kept different livestock. They didn't specialize in one, and so someone who had sheep would likely have goats too, and so they would put them out to graze together. But they had to separate them at some point. They were living according to the Old Testament teaching that taught, for example, about uh, putting together linens from, from, from mixed fibers was something you weren't supposed to do. So they didn't want to confuse that sheep's wool with the hair of a goat. And so they, they would separate them to shear them. Uh, they would separate them to milk them. There were different things they would separate them for. Jesus says at judgment, there's going to be a separation and it's going to be like this going to be separation that occurs so how is that going to happen well we get a glimpse of it in the scripture john chapter 10 jesus says my sheep know my voice when i call out to them they come to me it's a picture that goes back to ezekiel 34 in ezekiel 34 you've got this picture of the nation of israel as the sheep and and those who god had called to lead them as the shepherds and god says to those shepherds you're not leading my people like you should now, you're allowing them to be devoured and to be scattered but when the good shepherd comes he's going to gather the sheep he's going to call and they're going to hear him and then you get to the gospels and you see who that shepherd is it is Christ and in that moment of judgment the shepherd's going to he's going to say the name of the righteous and they're going to hear his voice and they're going to turn to him and there'll be a separation there i got a, a just a glimpse of this and what how the shepherd and sheep relationship looked like and then responded to the voice a number of years ago. I was reading a book about a man who had spent a year of his life with Bedouin shepherds. He wanted to understand this biblical motif of the shepherd and the sheep and so he, he lived among them. He interacted with them. He wanted to learn what does it mean to be a shepherd and why is there such a motif of shepherding in the Scripture? And He shared one story of an elderly lady in a community who had taken on the role of the shepherd. She was a shepherdess and she had about 75 sheep that she cared for that were hers. She was very distraught one day when as she was looking around. She, she knew her sheep. She knew one of them was missing. It had gone astray. She lived in an area where many shepherds would come through and she assumed that the sheep had wandered off and someone else's herd. And so she began to inquire neighboring communities, person after person. She'd describe her sheep. She'd say, have you seen my sheep? She'd look out in the herds to find the sheep and Soon she realized she wasn't going to find her sheep. Days, weeks, months went by. But every time she saw a shepherd with sheep, she would call out to him to, to see if they knew their, her sheep, if, if they had seen her sheep. And he shared about how one day there, there was a shepherd coming through her village with, with hundreds of sheep. And as she called out to him and described her sheep, this one little sheep's head popped up. It was her sheep. That she knew her voice and responded to her voice and came towards her when that sheep heard it. Jesus says that's a picture of the body of Christ. That, that His sheep, His people, they know His voice and they're going to respond to it. And in that day when there's judgment, we'll be known because we'll be the ones who respond. Jesus tells us exactly what that's going to look like. Because for us, there still may be some confusion. For us, we like that shepherd may be looking out at the sheep and goes from a distance wondering, what, what's this really going to look like? I mean, if we were to somehow look at 7 billion people, how, how are we going to know who are among the righteous, who are among the wicked? How does this work? 
Well, Jesus tells us that as we go on through this passage and helping us first to look at the righteous. And this is what he says of them. That the righteous will be known by their love for Christ and for His church. The righteous will be known by their love for Christ and His church. Jesus shares a passage here, a teaching here that has been confused, I believe, by many and misunderstood. See, oftentimes we read this text and Jesus is talking here about uh, how we treat those who are in need. Uh, we clothe them, we feed them, we visit them in prison. And, and, and people quickly just read over this and think, well, Jesus then is saying that, that we have to be merciful. And if we're not merciful, we're not going to be saved. And very quickly it slips then into a, a salvation based on works. If we do enough things, then we'll be okay. If we work hard enough, we'll be okay. What's the problem with that? Well, one, the Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture says that our salvation is based on faith, not works. And, And then two, can we ever give enough? Can we ever clothe enough? Can we ever feed enough? Can we ever be merciful enough? No, Jesus here is not saying that if you work, then you'll earn faith. He's saying your faith should produce works. And he is talking here in a very specific context. Notice verse 40. He says, if you do it to the least one of these, my brothers. He is talking here in the context of the body of Christ. There are two things we need to make sure we note about this passage. One is, Jesus is not talking about salvation based on works. We've talked about that. And think about this. How do the people respond? That They are surprised when Jesus brings up works. They're not expecting to be judged on their works. They're expecting judgment on faith. Jesus is saying your faith should work itself out in such a way. But they're not sitting there with their spiritual resume saying, all right, Jesus, yeah, I did that. And I did that, but here's a few you missed. Here's some stuff I did, Jesus. No, when Jesus says, you did this and you did this and you did this, they say, when when did we do that? How, How did we do that? And then Jesus gives us the key that unlocks this passage. He said, well, you did it to the least of these. When you did this among the church, among the body, you did this to me. Jesus there is teaching us that the way church, we treat one another is fundamental to our faith. Jesus is teaching us that when we say things like, well, I love Christ, I just have a problem with Christians, or I really love Jesus, I just have a problem with the church, when we say those things, we are not teaching what the Bible teaches or believing what Jesus taught. See, it's very comfortable for us to say, well, me and God, we're fine, we're over here because there's no accountability. We can come up with whatever obscure teaching we want to believe and be fine because nobody's there to keep us in check. And yet Jesus, throughout the Scriptures, talks about the need for us, His disciples, for us to gather together, to worship together, to to be a body. And here, the righteous, they're lumped together. And what are they known for? How they treated one another. How they took care of one another. And friends, that should bring to mind for us the question then, how are we treating one another? Again, your your works, they don't save you. But they certainly say a lot about whether or not you are saved. Think about the Apostle John and his letter, the first one, 1 John. He he talks about this and he says basically there there are three tests, there are three litmus tests for the believer. There there are three ways we should be able to know who's saved and who's not. First of all, do, do they accept 
Jesus is indeed the Messiah? Do they believe He's truly from God? He truly is God? Do they believe this? You can't be a follower of Christ and not believe that. goes on to say you also can't be a follower of Christ and not be obedient to Christ's commands. Not meaning that any of us are going to be perfect, but that we understand Christ has called us to follow Him, to obey Him. Him, that, that, that salvation is not just some get out of jail free card and now we're fine and we can live however we want. No, he's saying there should be fruit of our faith. The third litmus test, though, is this. If you say you love God, according to God's word, 1 John, if you say you love God and you don't love your brother and sister in Christ, well, then you're a liar. And friends, that should cause us great concern because oftentimes something that is lacking in the body of Christ is love for one another I don't believe the scripture teaches that we're just a bunch of drones that when we come to the faith we're always going to agree on everything you know I am a pastor I'm very aware that everyone does not agree with me they don't agree with you either We are a bunch of fallen people gathering together in an assembly. There are going to be differences. There are going to be disagreements. There is going to be sin that has to be dealt with. The church of Jesus Christ is a messy, messy place. Glory to God for that. Because He takes our messes and He takes our sins and He takes our disagreements and He takes our disunity and He redeems it for the glory of Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. But friends, if you sit in a place where you say, well, I love Jesus, but I'm never going to love that person, be scared for your soul. Because Christ says it's an indicator. Christ says it's a fruit. He says at judgment, He's not going to look and say, okay, who had perfect attendance? Oh, man, who, who, man, who was just really good as a husband and a father? Thank the Lord that's not going to be it. No, he says, did you love me? And did you love my bride, the church? And did you treat the least of these in such a way? Talking about the church. And if you did, you were treating me that way because this is my bride and it's my church. And the way you treat her is the way you're treating me. So you, you can say what you want about me and we're probably going to be okay. But if you say something about my bride, get ready. And husbands, you should be the same way. There's something about that. When somebody comes after your bride, they're coming after you in a very deep, malicious way. Jesus is saying the same thing about the church. Brothers, sisters, we need to love one another. We need to be in unity as believers. In the midst of disagreement and disunity at times, we need to fellowship and worship and bring glory to Christ. And if we can get our arms around that, and if the church of Jesus Christ could get their arms around that, the gates of hell will not prevail. What a picture that would be in our world today. And yet, what is the picture? Well, Christians don't get along with each other. Well, I used to go to such and such church, and then that happened. And it shouldn't be that way. And Jesus says it shouldn't be that way. And he gives this picture and says, listen, how are the righteous known? This is how they're known. But it's not just the righteous that he talks about. He says there's going to be a very real judgment, and there's going to be wicked that are dealt with as well. And that's the last point that I've placed your, in your notes, and it's this, that just as much as the righteous will be known by their love for Christ and His church, the, the wicked will be known by their rejection of Christ and His church. He says, that, that depart from Me into an eternal fire because what? 
Notice here he doesn't say because here's all the bad stuff you did. Jesus doesn't say because I've been keeping track. Jesus doesn't say when we stand in judgment that somehow he's going to play this side slideshow of our life and he's going to say, well, here's what you did wrong, here's what you did wrong. Or he's got this long list of sins and he's going to point it out, it out to us. What does he say? He's not condemning them for what they did. He's condemning them for what they didn't do. They didn't love him. And they didn't love his bride, the church. They rejected the gospel and the Messiah. And based on their rejection, based not on how many bad things they did, but the only righteous thing they could do or be enabled to do through the power of the gospel will be respond to it, that they will stand in judgment. And again, friends, this is everybody who's yet to bow their knee to Christ. And you and I might want to comfort ourselves in thinking, well, what about so-and-so? I mean, they seem like such a good person. I mean, they don't believe what I believe, but they're very devout. What does the Scripture teach us? Romans chapter 3. No one is righteous. Not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think of this picture, if you will. In Psalm 51, you've got David's response to God in light of his sin with Bathsheba. A great and a terrible sin adultery murder but in psalm 51 david doesn't go through that list david doesn't sit down as we read in psalm 51 and say lord forgive me for this and this and this and this no what does david do david admits he is indeed a sinner and this is what he says i was born in sin in my mother's womb i was a sinner how can that be how can it be that a baby in the womb can be a sinner? Because the Scripture tells us that's how we're all born. And that when we stand before God in judgment, we're not being judged for this list of things that we did. We're being judged for who we are. As fallen man, we are depraved and we are lost. And no matter how much you try to dress that up or clean it up or make it good, look good on the outside, Jesus says it's just like that fig tree. It's got the appearance of fruit, but you get close enough and you'll see there's no fruit there. Jesus says here, there's fruit lacking because faith is lacking and repentance is lacking. He's saying that, that we need to respond to the gospel. So I want us to step back and consider this for a moment. And what are the implications for us this Lord's Day here? You've got this picture and you've got this judgment. And in that judgment, the, the sole thing we see taking place in Matthew 25 is this, that Christ will look at the nations. And for those who loved Him and loved the bride, they will be on His right. And for those who rejected Him and the bride, they will be on His left. And for those on His right, they will have eternal life. And those on His left will have eternal judgment. Think about the implications of this for us here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. Do we believe this? This has serious implications for so many things. I think fundamental of which is just this whole notion we have of church membership. See, we like many churches have a membership right now that's not reflective of who's really here right now. You look around this room right now, take a picture of the first service, you'll find 250 people or so. Some are members, some aren't. The Good Sunday, maybe 300, 325. Easter, 450. Yet, on paper, we have some close to 9,000. Excuse me, 9,000. If we don't fix it, we will. Uh, close to 1,000 
See, now that doesn't seem so big, does it? Uh, close to one million. Now, we have about a thousand people who call themselves members of this church, and yet for many, they haven't stepped foot in this church for years. And I've talked to a lot of people about this, and I think some look at me as if I've got an axe to grind or I'm upset. I'm not. I want them here. I would love to have the problem on a Sunday morning of Leland coming into my office and saying, Pastor Richard, we've got an issue. Uh, there's 450 people here for the first service. We're not sure what we're going to do. Praise God. I would love that day. I would love it if everyone who called themselves a member of this church, if they came to this church, that's how it should be. And yet how it is, is, is it's not real clear. And I think one of the, the, the great things we need to think about in, in this process is this, that, that the likelihood is there's going to be a day at judgment when we who are truly saved, who have really repented and have faith and we're walking together, we're trying to, trying to be the body and do what Christ has called us to do, we're going to be standing, there's going to be a, a, a separation, and there are going to be people who are going to the, to the other side among the wicked, and they're going to say, but Lord, I'm a, I'm a member of such and such church. I was baptized in such and such church. I'm okay, right? See, we're granting them false assurance by telling them they're okay. And what we're called to do as a church is to lovingly reach out and, and lovingly go after folks, but if they say, I don't want to have anything to do with you, then we need to say we're going to reach out to you and we're going to reach out to you. But we can't just pretend that everything's okay. We need to have a church membership that's made up of church members. Somebody asked me the other day, why is this such a big deal? Because it's such a big deal. <laughs> because here in judgment, among all the things that Christ could name, what He names is, how do we treat one another in the body of Christ, His bride, and as we treated them, that's how we treated Him. And so the question this Lord's Day is the same as the last. And it will be the next Sunday and the Sunday after that as well. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to stand before a holy God? Not with this notion that somehow your good's going to outweigh your bad, because I'll tell you right now, it's not. Are you ready to stand before a holy God, but be seen as righteous? Not because of what you did, but because of what Christ did on that cross. That on that cross, our Savior was crucified. Not for His sin, but for ours. And in our repentance and our faith and our turning to that, we're not saying that we're great, perfect people. We're not saying we're not going to sin. We're saying that we are insufficient and our works will never be enough. That there is only one work that can atone for our sin and Christ accomplished that work on the cross. And we will stand before God clean and righteous. Because of Christ, not because of us. Are you ready for that? Am I ready for that? And if you're not, I invite you this Lord's Day, get ready now. Repent and have faith now. And be ready for this day. If you'll pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You've not left us to our emotions to try to work this out. But Lord, You've given us a very clear Word. And the Word is this. Get ready. And so, Father, I pray for any this morning who's not ready. I pray for any who's yet to repent and place their faith in Christ that, that they would. Pray for others who perhaps you're calling now in faith to come and join this church, not so that their name can be on an inflated roll, but, Lord, so that we can keep one another accountable and walk together and take this whole issue of church membership and discipline seriously. 
Lord, you tell us in your word that those who endure to the end will be saved. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the empowerment through your spirit to persevere. I pray now for any, Lord, that you're drawn to come during this time of invitation. We pray for him in Christ's name. Amen.